what we need to do is, is get to it. It needs to be credible, a combat credible. Hey, I have so much mission assurance for resiliency in space domain and other solutions. No matter what you do, you will be ineffective. So we need to get away from this this idea and telling it to ourselves and our our rivals believe it that we're vulnerable. We are not vulnerable. Welcome to the Space Power Podcast, where we interview strategists and defense experts on national power in space. I'm Jason Joel, and with me is Josh Gonzalez. We are honored today to be joined by Dr. John Patsy Klein, retired Navy commander and currently a senior fellow and strategist at Falcon Research Incorporated. He also serves as an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Space Policy Institute. He has two published books, Space Warfare, Strategy, Principles, and Policy, and more recently, Understanding Space Strategy, The Art of War in Space. He's the author of numerous works on space strategy and deterrence, many of which we will discuss here today. Patsy, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, and uh, thank you, uh, Jason and Josh, for having me. So I've got to ask, as one naval aviator to another, how does a Navy pilot like yourself end up doing space strategy? Well, uh, actually, it's not so far-fetched. Uh, like a lot of folks, uh, uh, growing up in Florida and uh, in the U.S., I wanted to be an astronaut. So if you want to be an astronaut, you uh, go get an aerospace engineering degree, which I did at Georgia Tech. Uh, join the Navy. Uh, if you want to become an astronaut when you're in the Navy, you go to the test pilot school and all that stuff. So it's always been uh, near and dear to my heart. As close as I got was an astronaut candidate list through the Navy. But uh, then the Columbia mishap happened and they sent everyone's resumes back. Uh, saying we won't need your services for a while. But, uh, you know, off to plan B and, you know, writing about space strategy is uh, just something that kind of seemed to make sense to me. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah, and you've leaned heavily on your Navy background writing about space strategy. Uh, How do you see naval strategy influencing the space power strategies that are being executed today? Well, I think, you know, when I first started writing uh, about 20 years ago, actually, my first article was Corbett in Orbit, just trying to highlight the similarities in strategic thinking between Corbett and you could say uh, Alfred Mayer, uh, Thayer Mahan as well. You know, just the strategic similarities, distance, lines of communication, commerce and trade. So there are a lot of similarities and, and there's still benefits to it. Uh, my first book was basically uh, using what uh, Sir Julian Corbett laid out of his maritime theory and applying it to space. So there's still relevance. I will share a good friend of mine, John Hattendorf, who runs uh, the uh, Maritime History Department at the Naval War College, wrote an article saying Mahan is not enough. And the same is true for Corbett. Corbett is not enough. You can't take one uh, great strategist or theorist writings and apply it in every occasion. So I think it's important to be well-versed on all the seminal writings of uh, strategists who've stood the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of strategy, you've said that the purpose of space strategy is to ensure access to and the use of space. So in the U.S. military, we use terms like space control. Others have used terms like command. 
And both of these terms, to me, seem to imply an offensive military strategy. So you've also written that the U.S. Joint Pub 314 doesn't really convey the true meaning of what an offensive strategy is, which is to take something from the enemy. And you say that offensive strategy should include both combat and violence. Um, So two-parter here. Does the U.S. truly have a grasp on what effective operations will look like in space? And then what do you personally think is the best way to ensure the access and use of space? Is it primarily a military strategy or how do the other instruments of national power play into that? Wonderful question. Uh, We could talk probably uh, a couple of days on it. So the short answer is no. I I don't think the Space Force uh, or the the broader space community has a good handle on what uh, the purpose of space power, space control, space superiority, and the like mean. Uh, I wrote an article a few years ago. You know, if you look at the lineage of the term space power, it came in most part through air power. And air power came about from Mahan's view of sea power. So it was a lot of military connotation. It was for great powers. Uh, If you couldn't do everything in space, it was implied that you couldn't do anything in space. So it was kind of like an absolute sense. Uh, But, you know, Corbett's writings were a little bit more nuanced, even though I will say Mahan at times in his life did write similar stuff. But, you know, command of space, control of space is not an absolute. So, you, you know, because space is so vast, you know, you can't control everything at all times. So I, I like the the command of space. I do believe the purpose of space strategy is to ensure access to and use of space. If you look at uh, other people's definition of space power, I think that's kind of implied. You got to be able to get to space and then you got to be able to use it. Uh, on your other part of the question, it's not just military strategy. It's a whole government approach. It's the instruments of national power. It's using strategic advantages that the U.S. has, like great allies and partners. Uh, Some of our rivals, like China and Russia, uh, they don't have as many uh, allies and partners as we do. Uh, Some of them are coerced, uh, if need be. And we have a wonderful commercial sector. So as we ensure, you know, access and use of space, uh, considering its vastness, we need to make sure we have allies and partners and our great uh, commercial sector on board. Patsy, talking about um, both allies and partners and, you know, limited control of space, given a lot of the research you've done on small space wars, this is a question uh, from one of our classmates, actually, a a British fellow named uh, Giselle Fletcher-Jones. He asked, uh, does this mean that rising powers that don't rely on space, but invest in ground-based space electronic warfare capabilities could have an asymmetric advantage over great powers who are reliant on space-based services? Uh, to answer Giselle's question, uh, most definitely yes. And this goes back to the strategic principle of seeking asymmetric advantage. So as compares or uh, adversaries square off of, against each other, they're going to look for advantages. Uh, that's just part of it. But, you know, less capable powers uh, or even uh, peer competitors are going to look for those things where they can achieve the greatest strategic effect with least amount of effort. So I think, you know, whether it's cyber attacks against uh, uh, the ground segment of space architectures, uh, jamming and lasing, uh, using ground-based sensors, that's an easy way for someone who's not really a space power to seek uh, some type of uh, 
strategic effect at the detriment of the greater space power. So uh, spot on. And I think we've seen that historically in the past, jamming and lazing, you know, uh, open source. Uh, you can look at the threat reports as an everyday occurrence. So folks are doing that for a reason. And the other part of it is uh, folks like the United States and other uh, space powers don't seem to have a very good response to ongoing jamming and lazing. Does it reach the threshold? Uh, it doesn't reach the threshold of what's considered an armed attack. So we kind of take it or what do we do about it? How far can we go to prevent it? So those are all ongoing questions. Yes. So kind of on that same line, when we're talking about offensive and defensive space control assets, um, what can the U.S., specifically the U.S. Space Force, be doing to expand our capabilities to increase our space power? So you've talked about your angels and demons concept, which you can get into if you'd like. But there's also, should we be looking at cislunar capabilities, something else entirely? What does the future of the Space Force look like? What capability should we be working to acquire? Um, so I'm going to take the academic uh, privilege of turning the question around. And I want to broaden off, uh, it's not just material solutions. It's not just technology. It can be uh, non-material solutions too. Uh, but we'll we'll talk about the, the material stuff, the technology. You know, as we look to ensure access and use, we need to have better space domain awareness. I don't think there's a current uh, role uh, at, at this time in the cislunar environment. There's just no there there right now. It's mostly a civil function uh, with NASA and other space agencies. But we should always know what's going on in the space domain, all the way out to geo, ex-geo, cislunar, whatever you want to call that, that other part. Uh, but on the, the uh, non-material, I think we still need to partner with our commercial uh partners. We need to share information with our allies and partners. We have a, U.S. has a really bad history of, uh, they call it uh, no foreign. You know, you can't share information. Uh, a lot of folks say, hey, we need to get to yes foreign. The angels and demons uh, concept is is relevant. So, you know, instead of offensive space control or defensive space control, I, I like terminology like offense and defense because that has a, a pedigree going back hundreds of years in simple terms, per Klauswitz and others. So yeah, we need to have plan for a range of potential futures with capabilities and assets, but let's not forget about the non-material. And uh, I'll give a, you know, my uh, forthcoming book. I, I try to like highlight some of the non-material things we can do, but we need to plan and have strategies that are uh, encompass the high end of conflict, such as great power competition, kinetic. Uh, irreversible effects, if you will, but also the, the gray zone operations, those actions that are less than um, overall uh, armed conflict. And we need to have better deterrent strategies that affect, you know, the competition continuum, not just the high end. There's this really bad phrase out there that you'll see in national strategies that says, if deterrence fails. So deterrence is about affecting the decision calculus of others. So even in conflict, even when you're at war with the adversary, you can still affect the decision calculus. So uh, that was maybe more than you wanted in this, uh, but there are technologies, but let's focus on the non-material because one, it's less contentious and our allies and partners would love to help out. Yeah, I uh, I love the phrase, if deterrence fails. Yeah. When, when we readily 
admit that you never know if deterrence works or doesn't work. So yeah, you can't pr- prove a negative. I mean, how do you know? And looking back at some of the writings from the Cold War by Colin Gray and Keith Payne, we may have gotten really lucky on our nuclear deterrence strategy. So a couple of times, uh, maybe sheer luck or dumb luck uh, saved us, which is kind of scary to think about. Keeping on the theme of deterrence, you've talked a lot about um, the need for the U.S. to develop a resilient space architecture uh, to field a deterrence by denial strategy. Uh, recently, last week, and as we're recording this in January 2023, uh, General Salzman, Chief of uh, Space Operations for the Space Force, released three lines of effort for the service, one of which was to field combat-ready forces with a focus on building resilient, ready, combat-credible forces. And he specifically said this is a pivot towards resilience. So that's got to be exciting for you. Yeah, I, I'm excited about his uh, line of efforts, his priorities. Uh, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the things he was saying have been said by me, and but also others for some years now. So uh, this is just a shout-out for the folks who love to write. Uh, you know, given enough time, you can affect change if you're very patient. And if you have a compelling argument and it makes sense, you know, other people will be convinced and then they can join in your effort. But uh, uh, yeah, I'm happy to see it uh, in that in writing. In the 2020 uh, defense space strategy and the White House space priority frameworks laid out in 2021, uh, one under the Trump administration, one released under the Biden administration, neither of those talked about resiliency. What came about to, to bring resiliency um, to the forefront of the CSO's mind in just one year. I honestly can't say uh, how he reached that determination. You know, the the mission assurance and resilience uh, arguments been going on uh, within the Pentagon probably since uh, 2015. But I think folks had a trouble linking mission assurance and resilience to deterrence by denial. So if if I have so much capability and able to, no matter what you do, I can fight through it or have combat credible forces, uh, that's powerful. And that's uh, in line with deterrence by denial of benefit. So a potential adversary may decide, hey, shooting down this satellite isn't going to achieve my objective because you have thousands of them. You have non-space solutions. You're going to know what I did and you might retaliate somewhere else. So I'll either not do that and I may go somewhere else to still uh, try to reach my political objectives, or I may not see confrontation at all. So I, I think it's just, it kind of makes sense, but the linkages between resiliency and deterrence have only been made uh, in the last few years. So maybe that uh, took hold. Yeah. And I think that's something we can expect to continue to see as space power continues to evolve. Space power theory continues to evolve. You know, we're still, we don't have a lot of history to back stuff up on. So it's good to see that progress is being made, and I think we'll continue to see that in the future. Agree. In that same line of effort, uh, General Saltzman talked, he defined a, a combat credible force as one that has demonstrated the ability to con- conduct offensive and defensive operations against an adversary. Has the Space Force demonstrated this ability? And if not, what action should the service take to make its forces more combat credible? I think there's been great strides in combat credible. I mean, you know, fighting through. Uh, your potential adversaries' actions, uh, like we were just saying on mission assurance. Uh, You know, recent efforts on the acquisition front, trying to make sure 
Uh, our future capabilities in space architectures can meet a variety of threats. I think that's important. I, I do want to get away from this phraseology that it comes up occasionally, and senior officers have said this, like the U.S. stands the most to lose in a war in space, or the U.S. is most vulnerable to attack than any other country. What we need to do is, is get to it. It needs to be credible, a combat credible. Hey, I have so much mission assurance for resiliency and space domain and other solutions. No matter what you do, you will be ineffective. So we need to get away from this, this idea and telling it to ourselves and our, our rivals believe it, that we're vulnerable. We need to get to We are not vulnerable. And I think it doesn't take that much effort and we're well on our way, but uh, shaping that narrative is important. Yeah, I think that's a it's a really interesting point that you're talking about here. And I wanted to swing back to the uh, the strategy just a little bit. Um, so I've heard you say, and I've heard anybody in the military has heard the saying that the general is always fighting the last war, meaning that we can't presume that the future conflict will look like today's conflict. So as it relates to space, what do you see as the future of war um, and how should that be straight shaping today's space strategy? Yeah, I do. I mean, what's going on in Ukraine, a lot of folks are saying, hey, let's glean the lessons on the future of space warfare from Ukraine. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, current events and history does teach lessons that we should take away. But, you know, uh, no future conflict is going to look exactly the same. So we should be planning for a range of potential um, options and, and uh, scenarios. Two areas that popped to mind, like where should we be going? We're seeing a general trend, uh, especially when we look at what SpaceX is doing uh, with their Starlink uh, constellation, providing command and control to Ukrainian forces. Uh, Putin himself has said he considers SpaceX to be an extension of the U.S. government. So we're seeing the role of commercial companies being associated with uh, state actors in conflict. You know, ultimately, U.S. rivals will make that determination. It's a political one. Uh, you could we could argue the legal aspects of it, uh, but it's going to be a political decision. I think on the U.S. side, we need to think about it from our perspective. We know potential rivals will probably go after our commercial. How do we feel about going after our potential adversaries' commercial assets? China has its version of commercial. It's tightly controlled uh, with the party, uh, answering to uh, close ties with the PLA, too. So are we comfortable with that? I think it's important for us to have a dialogue with our allies and partners about how we see that. There's some on the spectrum of either way, and I think that needs to be hashed out. The other lessons learned is, uh, especially in the commercial, it's the role of proxies in proxy war. So the idea of force for a hire is an idea that goes back thousands of years. Uh, the Greeks and Romans and, and others uh, couldn't afford a, a great military, so they just bought one or bought the, uh, the mercenaries to do it. So you know, what are the role of uh, private military companies in providing forces or uh, combat fighting services to other states? So there's a lot there. Uh, I'm always just, I want to make sure we're learning good lessons um, and, and not the wrong ones. 
Yeah. So when you're talking about um, kind of the blurring of lines between military and commercial and how that's going to be the future, how does that tie into the National Space Council when they're kind of tasked with integrating space across all this, all the sectors, as far as I understand it? What do they do today and how could that kind of be expanded into the future for, for this scenario? Uh, there's some great writings by uh, doctors uh, Scott Pace and John Loxton that give you the different historical examples of the U.S. Space Council or uh, other venues to synchronize and um, coordinate space efforts across the government. Uh, each administration kind of has its own flavor to answer that. So, you know, the previous administration, the National Space Council was kind of like the clearinghouse for all things space. Uh, this administration decided to kind of break it up with Office of Science and Technology Policy, the National Security Council, and the National Space Council. Uh, should it be better integrated? Uh, I'm in favor of the Central Clearinghouse, the National Space Council, but some see, you know, because space is so uh, ubiquitous and it's what it does for affecting policy, hey, maybe separating it out and, and taking it as each issue comes up to make sure it's integrated that way. Uh, but I am a, I am a fan of the, the central way and that way there's a coherent message. Sometimes the office of science technology policy, uh, recently they were involved in a CISLIN or SNT strategy. Uh, you know, what does that mean for on the national security side is DOD supposed to act on it? A lot of those questions are still out there. Uh, I think there is some benefit of unity of effort and unity of voice when it comes to these issues. So, yeah, I'd be on the, the former side. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, thinking about centralized control of of space and, and unity of effort, because it's certainly something we want to see, but we don't want to stifle in innovation, um, which is what a lot of people talk about, you know, potentially happening with China. If we were to go to war with China, a lot of people would say that it's going to start in space. Is that something you'd agree with? And, and how how would you see them at going after uh, control of space. All right. So uh, prediction and forecasting is uh, something I try to avoid, but I'll just reference uh, Chinese doctrine and literature as I understand it. Uh, China has a different view of deterrence, a different view on the role of space. Uh, they have a holistic, a more unified approach. So space for space sake is meaningless. It's, it's what you can do to achieve Beijing's will. Uh, they have uh, all aspects unified, uh, informationized wars under local conditions. So as space supports that, uh, that's its relevance. Will they uh, go after war and uh, attack in space first? Well, uh, if we came to conflict or with anyone, if they saw we were vulnerable and hadn't done the mission insurance like we said we did, that would just be a purely asymmetric attack. And that's that's on us for leaving ourselves vulnerable. So I can't say uh, what the CCP leadership would do in a potential conflict. Uh, will it, does uh, China need space to win? Uh, no, potentially not. You know, in some scenarios, if it was a uh, Taiwan scenario, maybe space is mostly irrelevant due to the proximity of the uh, area of, uh, of combat. So I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer to that on what's going to happen, but we should plan for a range of potential futures where it is the first uh, to go. 
maybe it starts off in cyber. I think that's probably more likely, especially how they're interconnected space architectures with the ground segment. And that's uh, sometimes your best indication that bad things are happening. Yeah, no doubt. Cyber is certainly uh, a vulnerability um, and an opportunity, to, you know, depending on on where your strengths lie. Um, talking a little bit more about deterrence, you mentioned uh, the Chinese have a different view of deterrence than us. One of the things you've talked about in the past is U.S. needing to field an active debris removal capability uh, to allow U.S. space assets to execute its deterrence strategy. There are some people out there who would say that having a debris removal capability actually lowers deterrence because it debris itself or the creation of debris itself is a deterrent. Uh, how would you respond to that? I would vehemently disagree, <laughs> and I'll, I'll bring up some historical. So you know, first we'll, we'll unpack. So the purpose of space strategy is to ensure access to use of space. Debris can be an indiscriminate hazard that affects U.S. interests and other people's interests. So it's hard to have freedom of action if debris is getting in the way. And there's a lot of analogies. So, you know, navies needed minesweepers to clean up mines because they couldn't translate sea lines of communication or harbors. Army personnel need to be able to clean up anti-personnel mines uh, to move. So, Militaries having a capability to clean up indiscriminate hazards is important. Uh, you know, the, this uh, idea that active removal would be destabilizing reminds me of a lot of the, the arguments in the Cold War. There was this argument, hey, we shouldn't have missile defense because missile shooting down nuclear weapons coming at you is destabilizing. Right. Because if you have a capability that the Soviets didn't have, you know, that would uh, that wouldn't uh, allow for parity. I, I think that's insane. I think, you know, the inherent right of self-defense that's part of customary international law allows you to protect yourself if you're going to be attacked. Um, and the other part with that scenario. So even if you did buy into it, uh, this invokes what I call a systemic in the United States uh, military community of mirror imaging. So our potential rivals, whether it's a Russia or China, they have a different worldview than ours, uh, based culturally, societally, uh, and the like. So, you know, the idea that the U.S., you know, that it will affect everyone the same is wrong. So U.S. rivals may determine, hey, U.S. is going to lose more through active de through debris generation, given, hey, we say we're the most vulnerable. So they may do it anyway. Uh, so we got to be cognizant of mirror imaging uh, our potential rivals as ourselves. So moving along kind of outside the realm of what we have been discussing, we have a second listener question that came in from Wes Fight. And his question was, is the great medium emerging distinction from Pekowski really relevant today, uh, especially when the U.S. wasn't technically a great power by Pekowski's definition when he published a uh, great power definition saying that the state has to have indigenous human spaceflight capability. So would it be better to make the distinction by space lift capacity, number of satellites, proven rendezvous proximity operations, 
or some other measurement. And just for the listener, those three levels of distinction that Pekowski wrote about were emerging space powers, which have the ability to develop, maintain, and control their own indigenous satellites, but they are not able to launch medium space powers, all the above, but they can launch indigenously as well. And then great space powers, same as medium, but they also have the added capability of indigenous human space flight. Uh, so yeah, I use Pawkowski's uh, model in my book. It, it's probably the most known model, so that's why I reference it. Uh, we'll do a standard disclaimer. The uh, you know folks like me, academics, we love to parse and segment and define and categorize. Ultimately, that kind of breaks down. So 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 what? You know, I think the case is almost like uh, for India. You know, it doesn't have a human space flight, but you could say, hey, it's it's trending towards great space power status. The point is to like, at least in the context for strategy is not to say, okay, you're, you're emerging and you're medium and you're great. So you're going to use these strategies. It's, it's you, they can span the continuum, but I think the interests and the capabilities and services for folks who are on the lower emerging is going to be different. So they may seek asymmetric approaches where great powers are more concerned with maintaining the status quo, like the United States. So the strategy to maintain the status quo is fundamentally different for folks trying to upset the current uh, global order. So one's more status quo is defensive strategy. Uh, trying to upset the global order could have elements of offensive and uh, irregular warfare. So uh, it's a good good construct. I use it. It's helpful. Uh, all, all of them break down. You can nitpick them. Uh, you know, in certain countries like Ukraine, you know, because they, they had missiles at one time, but, you know, we, we made them give them up. You know, where do they fall? Uh, but, yeah, I think it's most important to keep the big picture the big picture. And that's a great way to kind of start wrapping things up here. We do have a few questions we like to ask all of our guests. Um, to further advance space power theory, what do you think are the topics that need to be further explored or developed? Uh, that's a a question I've been wrestling with in recent months. I won't give you uh, my, my whole list, but it goes back to those non-material solutions. So, you know, we need to have technological innovation and capabilities and services to uh, have offensive and defensive capabilities. But I think the importance of education and training, we need to train, U.S. needs to train its guardians to prepare for the high end and the low end of conflict and competition that involves the space domain or against space architectures. What we see as U.S. rivals proclivity for actions that are coercive but below the threshold of armed conflict, uh, you know, they're, over time they can have strategic effect. I think we need to prepare for protracted competition and have patience. You know, we're, we are, uh, Americans are very impatient and we want to move on to the next thing. But our rivals act because they know we are impatient and they're looking for this cumulative approach, this cumulative strategy to achieve objectives over time. Um, we've talked about defensive measures and the need for resilience. We need to broaden our understanding of deterrence strategies as to include intra-war deterrence, like we were talking about, because the need to affect the decision calculus of your adversary is very important 
uh, during conflict, especially if they're nuclear powers. So let's uh, let's get past that uh, idea of deterrence fails and move to uh, more practical strategies. Yeah, that's a great great list of stuff, and I I look forward to to the next generation of people who are who are going to further that along. That's you, Jason. You're the next yeah. generation. <laughs> we we are the next generation. I hope so. There is hope. Uh, last question here before we wrap up. If listeners want to learn more about straight, um, excuse me, space strategy or deterrence, where can they go? Do you have any recommended books, articles, podcasts? Uh, I don't have any podcasts. Uh, you're welcome to look at my LinkedIn profile. I unashamedly uh, uh, list all links to all my publications. Some of it's uh, the same stuff in different form. I try not to be too repetitive, but a compelling story is a compelling story. So uh, sometimes the ideas do repeat. But yeah, you, you can uh, look me up. Uh, happy to connect on LinkedIn, uh, John J. Klein. Um, you'll, you'll see me there and uh, happy to further engage on the conversation. Well, Patsy, once again, thanks for joining us here today. This has been a fantastic discussion. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you in D.C. when we move up there. Uh, thanks. Thanks, uh, Jason and Josh. Yeah, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please give us a follow and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.